So I was talking to uh, another pastor this past week, and I told him that uh, this year I'm preaching through the book of Numbers, and he gave me the same look that you all gave to me when I told you I was going to preach through the book of Numbers. What we realized even last week is that the title of the book itself is misleading. The title, book of Numbers, is actually from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible is what calls it the book of Numbers because of the census numbers taken in the first four chapters and then again in chapter 26. But that's not really what the book is about. And in fact, the Hebrew title of this book of the Bible is In the Wilderness, And that's a much more apt description of this book and why it's so incredibly applicable to our lives. The Hebrew word for in the wilderness is Bemidbar. And so this book of the Bible is really more like rightly called Bemidbar, in the wilderness or in the desert. It's a book not about numbers. It's a book about God with his people in the wilderness. We have been saved, delivered, rescued, but we are now in the wilderness heading toward the promised land. We are in the wilderness, and God is with us. If you have experienced yourself to be in the wilderness, uh, then this is really for you. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer as we come to his word. Our God, we are grateful that you are with us. It is because of your grace that that is the case, that you would choose to be our God and for us to be your people. There are days in which we very much experience wilderness wanderings, experience the dryness of the desert heat, the barrenness of the soil, and wonder if we will ever reach the promised land. Other days are more exhilarating and uh, things are happening and we are encouraged uh, that there is, in fact, uh, new heavens and new earth to come and we rejoice in that promise. And so whether we are in a dry moment or in a moment of great harvest, Uh, Cause us to look to you and to know uh, you as the God present with us and that you continue to uh, create better things in us and among us and by us. And so it is we need now your Holy Spirit to come and to bear witness with this preaching and reading of your word. So it is we would also pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we get to, uh, to chapter 3, let's do a quick review of what we saw last week uh, from the first two chapters. The book of the Bible here begins by telling us that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month. And from that, we saw that Moses is the main writer of this book with later editorial work to put the whole thing together. And because it is a book, it's not a play-by-play account. Certainly, there were notes taken along the way and uh, things that were spoken to Moses. He uh, wrote those things down. But the whole book of Numbers is ultimately written and compiled after the events recorded here took place. And so the original audience of the book is the second generation of Israelites, those who are born in the wilderness who will be the ones actually to enter into the promised land. And so this book, like every book of the Bible, has a purpose. And again, on your worship notes in the back of the bulletin, wrote out the most basic purpose statement of to call the second generation of Israel to arms as the holy army of God. The opening chapter, then, is a census to determine how many are available if and when the country will go to war. 
how many are there to be this holy army? And from that, then, I've given you also that most basic outline for the book, that the first part of the book is constituting this first army. But then we'll read about the failures in the march, necessitating this constituting of the second army. And as we go along, we'll flesh out that purpose statement and outline. And we're going to see that there is indeed wide agreement among Christians as to the meaning and application of this book of the Bible. But like this uh, and every book of the Bible and the whole Bible, there's two main interpretive approaches that Christians take, a dispensational approach or a covenantal approach. And here we'll see the covenantal approach, and hopefully uh, you'll see why that's important and why that's distinctive. And that particularly in a covenantal approach, we see Christ throughout the Old and New Testaments. We see the continuity. We see the Old Testament as the gospel concealed and the New Testament as the gospel revealed. And so to help us get our heads wrapped around this, last week we talked about the two ways in which people come together into groups. There are edge-bounded groups and center-focused groups. We tend to be drawn to the center-focused groups because those are those groups that we join because we have something common together, a common interest or a common activity. We join uh, music groups so that we can do a particular music together or uh, sports teams uh, in order to cheer for or play a certain sport. Um, uh, uh, certain activities and, uh, and exercise, CrossFit these days, right? Uh, or the, the ninja stuff, uh, our little ninjas, right? Uh, get together so they can do these activities together. We get together with those who have a common interest and want to do things together. We like those groups. But those groups have people that kind of come in and out, but there's a, a central fo- focus group that sort of holds the thing together. Well, that's different than edge-bounded groups, which have clearly defined edges. You're either in or you're out. And last week we talked about the family as an edge-bounded group, that you're either part of the family or you're not part of the family, and yet the family often doesn't have things in common, right? And the more you get out into your extended family, as we experienced over the holidays, but anytime you get the whole family together and you think, I can't believe I'm related to these people, because we have nothing in common with each other except for the fact that somehow we're related. The church of Christ and the people of God are this odd combination of being both edge-bounded as well as center-focused. We are a family, and yet as a family, we have different preferences and personalities. And so we must find our unity in Christ. If If we see disagreements in the church, it's usually because of those personalities and those preferences, those things that uh, we don't quite connect on. And so we often have to come back to this unity of the Spirit, this unity of Christ, to remind us how it is that we get to be the church together and that those preferences and personalities sometimes need to take a sideline, as we do when family gets together. You might not always like what the family's going to do, but you do it because that's what's been agreed upon. And so if a person wanted to become an Israelite, they couldn't just arbitrarily say, okay, poof, I'm now an Israelite. They had to join a particular family and clan and tribe. Are you going to be with Reuben, Simeon, Levi? Are you going to be in Benjamin? Are you going to be in Judah? Where are you going to live? What part of the land are you going to be in? Who are you going to associate with? What duties are you going to have? The same is true then for us today. A person cannot simply say, I'm a part of the church of Christ now. You are to affiliate, to join and become a part of a local church family with its privileges and responsibilities. At the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. 
And so it is, the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. And so the patterns of what we see with the Old Testament church of Israel is a pattern that we see then through Christ to see ourselves as the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. If a person is committed to following Christ, then that commitment includes becoming part of a particular church family. And that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 then shows this, uh, this family, this Old Testament church family, encamped around the tabernacle. The 12 tribes centrally focused on the tabernacle at the center. And more to the point, the one who dwells in the tabernacle, Yahweh himself. And that, of course, points us to Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit tabernacles in you? And then in Ephesians 2, shows us that the people of God are being built together to become a holy temple to God. And so because of Christ, God now tabernacles in us. God dwells in us. Israel encamped around the tabernacle is this great foreshadowing of uh, the, of Christ dwelling among his people and the spirit indwelt uh, new Israel encamped around Christ and the eternal church ultimately made up of believers throughout the ages forever encamped around the triune God of the universe. And all of that then brings us to Numbers chapter three. Let me read just the first 10 verses and then break that down a little bit. Listen to God's word. This is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the appointed priests, who were ordained to serve as priests. Nadab and Abihu, however, fell dead before the Lord when they made an an offering with unauthorized fire before him in the desert of Sinai. They had no sons. So only Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests during the lifetime of their father Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron, the priest, to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. So here we have chapter 3 clearly clearly starting an account that is to be distinguished from the first two chapters. This is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai. So who is this family? Who is this family of Moses and Aaron? Well, it's the family of Levi, the tribe of Levi. We often talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, but there are actually 13 tribes of Israel. The 13th tribe is the third son of Israel, Levi. There's Reuben, Simeon, and then Levi's number three, Judah's number four. And so brothers Moses and Aaron are from the tribe of Levi. Moses and Aaron wear Levi jeans. Been waiting all week to say that. Aaron is the first high priest. He has four sons who are named Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Leviticus 10, 
uh, gives us the account of what happened to those first two sons. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. This is one of those tragedies that seem unnecessarily harsh because we tend to think of God as needing to operate on our terms rather than operating on his terms. Doesn't God want me to be happy? No, God wants us to be holy as he is holy. And so the reference here to God's holiness and God as a consuming fire reminds the reader of why it is there's only two remaining sons of Aaron who can serve. And it also sets the tone, certainly for chapters three and four, and the dangerous duty that the Levites have in serving the Lord. It is for us a reminder that God takes his worship seriously. Coming into God's presence is not something to be taken lightly. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament book of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One commentator says it well. Do we take worship that seriously? If so, then we will arrive in plenty of time for the service rather than straggling in whenever we get there. Yes, there are times when life conspires to make it hard to get to church on time, but we should be as careful about being at church on time as we are at work. Taking worship seriously also means coming with hearts prepared to meet with God, eagerly longing to hear his word. That's not a natural state for our hearts to be in. If you're like me, you will need to prepare your heart to approach God. The same commentator goes on to say, yet in the midst of the seriousness and reverence of our worship, there also has to be a note of joy. Serious worship that lacks joy is as much an abomination as joyful worship that lacks any reverence. The Levites were not simply a symbol of the solemnity of God's law, but also a constant reminder of the grace Israel received in redemption. There is grace in election and being chosen by God to become his people, for him to be our God that we might even come to the Lord in worship. As Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That anyone can come to the Lord in worship is because of the riches of his grace. By the love of the Father, we are children of God. We come to the throne of God, and the only reason we can come is because it is a throne of grace. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. 
not because they are holier in and of themselves, but because God has set them apart for this work. Now, next week, we're going to look more closely at the assigned work, the assigned duties of the Levites, and how that very much connects to Christ. Verse 7 summarizes by saying, They are to perform duties for Aaron and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. Now, the phrase that the NIV translates as to perform duties is more accurately translated by the ESV as to keep guard. They are to keep guard, to stand guard. Because notice what verse 10 says. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. And so one of the jobs of the Levites was to stand guard around the tabernacle so that no one but the appointed Levites would approach the tabernacle. The end of Numbers 1, verse 53, says that the wrath of God could fall on the whole Israelite community if anyone but the appointed priests were to go near to the tabernacle. And again, that whole thing sounds so strange to us because for so long, too many have taken such a casual approach to God. We've confused God's mercy, love, and grace as meaning that God is no longer holy, just, omnipotent. We cannot approach God on our own because we are not holy enough to approach God. The only way we can approach God is by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the great and final priest. We need a mediator between ourselves and God And Christ is that mediator. The Levites foreshadow this final work of Christ. So can you imagine being one? Can you imagine being one of the Levites? And that's your job. You're to camp, live, work, and stand in a place that if anybody else stands, they'll die and possibly bring God's wrath on the whole community. You need to say, stop or I'll shoot. You need to stop people from coming forward so that God's wrath doesn't fall on everyone. And they're supposed to stay there. And the work they're supposed to do is the physically hard work of dismantling, transporting, and reassembling the tabernacle itself whenever God's people are to go on the move. And so in Levite households, no one asked, so what do you want to be when you grow up? If you are a Levite, the answer is, you're going to be a priest serving at the tabernacle as a mediator between God and his people. That's what you're going to do when you grow up. A task that should fill you with reverent fear and joyful humility. Whenever we come to the throne of grace, we come with that joyful humility and reverent fear. Now, the next section of this chapter is uh, where the three three clans, the sort of sub-tribes, the three sons of Levi, are given specific duties, and we're going to get more into that next week. So I'm not going to read all of this, but to see that... um, that 11, let's just start at 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine, I am the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, count the Levites by their families and clans, count every male a month old or more. So Moses counted them as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. And we're given all those names in the next couple of uh, 
verses. And beginning at verse 21, it's broken down into those three tribes of Kershon, Koath, and Merari, and how many there are, where they're to camp, and what their duties will be. Skip down, though, to verse 38. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle, toward the sunrise, in front of the tent of meeting. They were responsible for the care of the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. The total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Moses and Aaron, according to their clans, including every male a month old or more, was 22,000. And the Lord said to Moses, count all the firstborn Israelite males who are a month old or more and make a list of their names. And take the Levites for me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites and the livestock of the Levites in place of all the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am the Lord. So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites as the Lord commanded him. And the total number of firstborn males a month old or more listed by name was 22,270. Three. So here we see the firstborn children. The Levites belong to the Lord in place of all the firstborn children of the Israelite community. Now think about that, and there really is something about firstborn children, isn't there? Firstborn children are well known to be the perfectionists, the leaders, responsible, cautious, and controlling. Of course, the firstborns will tell you that this is because they had all those rules enforced on them that somehow parents didn't seem to enforce on their younger siblings and clearly wasn't fair. Parents attempt to raise their firstborns perfectly, make sure they never run too fast or run too far, and coating them in antibacterial lotion and protect them within an inch of their life. If the pacifier hits the ground, you, you know, sanitize it and boil water and all that. By the time you get to child number three, four, or five or more, the pacifier could fall into a mud puddle. You just sort of pick it up and wipe it on your pants and stick it back in their mouth, right? We really do treat our firstborn children differently. We thought long and hard about what we would do when we were parents, and here they are. And so we attempt to do it all with this first one. But eventually it just turns into survival, right? And so we get more lax along the way. And even though it doesn't get carried through consistently all the way, what we do with the firstborn child really does set the tone for the rest of our family. What we attempt to do with the firstborn really does get carried through to an extent by setting that tone. The same thing is true for our finances. What we do with the first dollar of our paycheck sets the tone for what we do with the rest. What we do with the first day of the week sets the tone for the rest of the week. And that's a good thing. The book of Revelation encourages the church in Ephesus to return to their first love. The Lord calls us to give a tithe of our first fruits. The Lord calls us to do what we're doing right now to come together to worship on the first day of the week as the Lord's day. And so being God-focused and Christ-centered at the outset sets the tone for what happens to the rest. Now this theme of the firstborn belonging to God takes us back to the Exodus. We go back to the Exodus when the firstborn of Egypt were struck down, but the firstborn of Israel were saved as the destroyer passed over the houses protected by the blood of the lamb. 
And then following the celebration of that first Passover, Exodus 13 says this. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so firstborn animals were sacrificed. Firstborn sons were consecrated to the service of God in the sanctuary. And that is the consecration that is in view in the New Testament reading earlier from Luke chapter 2. Joseph and Mary had gone to Jerusalem to consecrate their firstborn son, Jesus, with that reference to Exodus 13 given. And so Jesus is the final firstborn, the only begotten son of the Father, and he has been consecrated and takes the place of all the elect saints. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, that sense of uh, redemption and consecration, uh, there was this incident with the golden calf, and the Levites at that time were to take the place of the firstborn Israelites. So that the Levites foreshadow the final firstborn. The Levites foreshadow the final firstborn, Jesus Christ, who is also the final great high priest and the mediator between God and his people. And so verses 21 through 38 that tell us about the roles for each of the groups of Levites also tell us where they were to camp. They were to camp around the tabernacle, but between the tabernacle and the, tri- the 12 tribal encampments. So if you can picture that, the tabernacle at the center and the 12 tribes all camped around, but in the midst of that, camped around were this, was this 13th tribe, the Levites. The main group of priests, Moses and Aaron, and their sons camped on the east. The family and clans belonging to Kohath on the south. The families and clans belonging to Gershon on the west, and the families and clans belonging to Merari on the north. And that picture takes us to the last section of this chapter and the most pointed purpose of the census of the Levites. Go back to verse 44 and let's read to the end there. The Lord also said to Moses, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel, and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine, I am the Lord, to redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceed the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. Give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the Israelites, he collected silver weighing 1,365 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. So we got this whole thing about redemption. The Lord had determined for the Levites to take the place of the firstborn. And so they needed to be counted, not counted in preparation for war, but counted to make sure that the same number was the number of the firstborn in Israel. There's 22,000 Levites, 22,273 firstborn. Close, but not enough. So the 273 needed to be paid for as well. In all this, what we see is this theme of redemption over and over again. Verse 46, to redeem the 273, collect shekels. 
Verse 48, give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites. And again in verse 49, Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. So notice that theme of redemption. The Levites are the redeemers for the, for, for the firstborn. Redemption money needed to cover the others so that every single person was redeemed particularly. We talked about that theme and the nature of redemption just a couple of weeks ago and that most minor and wonderful character of Christmas, Anna. Luke 2.38 tells us that Anna spoke about the child Jesus to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption means to buy something back. And the biblical term has that added component of freeing a slave. A slave could be set free if another person was willing to pay the price for their redemption. Remember, we talked about Dobby, the free elf, because the redemption price was paid for him. We were slaves to sin. Jesus entered the marketplace and passed from dealer to dealer to buy back all of his elect saints. And if we are purchased out of the marketplace, we can never be sold again. There's an old word that doesn't get used much. We're going to sing it in a little bit. And it's the word surety. And the surety is one who has become legally liable for the debt of another. And that's what Jesus does for us. He is our surety that he takes on our debt, purchasing us, and we can never be sold again. And so Numbers chapter 3 points to this huge work of the Levites to serve as mediators and redeemers. And now, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, says 1 Timothy. Jesus has paid for you. The Levites served as priests, carrying for the tabernacle, preparing the sacrifice, making sure that no one came to God except through the priests. And now, Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so we come near to God in reverent fear and joyful humility. The Levites redeemed Israel, paying for each one to the exact number. And now, Hebrews 9, Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But Jesus did not die for some undefined number of humans who might potentially be saved. Like the Levites substituted for the firstborn on a one-to-one basis, redeeming each particularly, So Christ's perfect life and death atoned particularly for each of the elect. The Apostle Peter wrote this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The price of our redemption was Christ's blood. The Old Testament anticipated it, foreshadowed it, and its fulfillment is now found in Christ's once 
for all sacrifice. Jesus himself said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus didn't just write a blank check. He has paid specifically the payment for every one of his elect people. Jesus specifically paid for you. May the truth set us free. Amen.